throughout American history to the 21st century, regardless of the laws, court decisions, and changing political environment, the second has consistently meant this, that the second a black person exercises this right, the second they pick up a gun to protect themselves, or the second that they don't, their life, as surely as Orlando Castile's, to mere races, Alton Sterling's, may be snatched away in that single fatal second. Yes. Yes. When I wrote that sentence, it came from the heart. Coming up on The Janice Adams Show, Carol Anderson, author of The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. Bourgeois radicals, eyes off the prize. We are not yet equal. White rage, one person, no vote, the second. Carol Anderson, in America, who is entitled to what and who is not? That is the story of my scholarly career in looking at the fractured citizenship of African-Americans. How is it fractured and why is it fractured and what are the consequences of that fracturing? Um, And what I see coming in from the founding is that black people have not been citizens. Um, It has always been a struggle. And what we're always fighting against is a thing I call anti-blackness. And that is the piece that is really highlighted in this book, the second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. It's how anti-blackness, the fear of black people, this the sense of Black people as a threat, um, as dangerous, is the thing that always must be protected against, that Black people must consistently be put down, subjugated, controlled, in order for American society, white society, to feel safe. This sentence really stood out for me in the press release that was sent to me. Throughout American history to the 21st century, regardless of the laws, court decisions, and changing political environment, the second has consistently meant this, that the second a Black person exercises this right, the second they pick up a gun to protect themselves, or the second that they don't, their life, as surely as Philando Castile's Tamir Rice's, Alton Sterling's, may be snatched away in that single fatal second. Yes. Wow. Yes. When I wrote that sentence, it came from the heart because it was looking at how merely having a gun or merely having a toy gun signaled threat, threat, And this would be in open carry states. This would be having a licensed legal weapon to carry. This would be in that the decision to have a gun or not, Black people were consistently in the crosshairs, consistently seen as threat, consistently seen as dangerous, and consistently seen as uh, something that had to be contained or or subjugated. I mean, this is what we saw, frankly, with Trayvon Martin, the the teenager in Sanford, Florida, who was walking with Skittles and iced tea. And George Zimmerman sees this suspicious guy uh, that these kind, they always get away. And he started following this unarmed child with a loaded nine millimeter gun and shot the child dead claimed self-defense, claimed he was afraid, fearful, and the jury bought that. The second. The second. I hear you mention that, and and then there's Marissa Alexander. Her husband even admits that she was a victim of his domestic violence. She has a licensed gun. 
she fires a warning shot in the air to say, don't do it again. Florida, and this is a counterbalance the same time as George Zimmerman is getting away literally with murder. She fires a shot in the air and instead the police and the prosecutors conspire to prosecute, convict her, put her in jail for what? Reckless endangerment or something to that effect, saying that although Florida had a stand your ground law, that she was not under the purview of stand your ground because as she broke away from her husband who had put her in the hospital before and she had a nine day old baby at home, nine days old, as she broke away from her husband and and ran to the garage, she couldn't get out of the garage. So she went to her car that's in the garage and got her gun and came back in the house and fired a warning shot. They said because she had retreated that she did not have the right to re-engage. She had lost the ability to stand your ground when she came back in the house. But notice that with George Zimmerman, they did not say that when the 911 operator told him, sir, are you following him? You need not to be doing that that he disobeyed that instruction from the 911 operator and chose to engage Trayvon Martin, an unarmed teenager. And so you get this difference in the ways that stand your ground work. And one of the things that I highlight there- Excuse me, in the same state. In the same state, both in Florida, and actually this was the same prosecutor's office, both for for Marissa Alexander and for George Zimmerman, the same prosecutor's office. And and so one of the things that I highlight are the studies coming out that show the racial disparity in Stand Your Ground. And so those racial disparities are that whites who kill blacks are 10 times more likely to to be ruled as a justifiable homicide than blacks who kill whites. And that whites who kill blacks have a 281% um, likelihood of it being found justifiable than when whites kill whites. It is having a black victim. That is basically your get out of jail free card because black is seen as the default threat. And the thing about stand your ground as law is that it says you can stand your ground wherever you have a right to be. So that is a massive expansion of the castle doctrine. That is about if somebody comes into your home, you have the right to to fight to keep them out of your house. But with the stand your ground, anywhere you have a right to be. So if I'm in the parking lot, if I'm on the street, if I'm in a park, if I'm in a grocery store, and I feel threatened, if I perceive threat. Well, when black is the the default threat in American society, that perception of threat is what makes stand your ground so lethal for black folk. And seeing then the ways that the lack of accountability for the killing of black folks works in stand your ground, it just adds to it. It it, um, amplifies the, the sense of threat. So when I wrote, the second you pick up a gun or, or the second that you don't, your life can be ended in that fatal second. That's what I'm talking about. Carol, how did you get involved in this work? Um, as a child growing up, I, I saw massive inequities in my neighborhood. Um, I saw um, injustices. I saw that, you know, my father, who was career military, uh, when he had gotten out of the military and moved to Columbus, Ohio, how my mother had found this house on Oakland Park that she loved. And the realtor was like, that's not where you people live. And it's like, well, who would you people be? People who fought in World War II and in Korea? Those you people? Um, who would you people be? Um, and so we ended up moving into an area that was being blockbusted. So the white families were fleeing. And with that flight came uh, the lack of resources in the community, the kind of disengagement from municipal authorities. So my father's on the phone consistently 
demanding that they come and pick up the trash, you know, doing basic city functions. Um, and so it was that. And, and so my work then really dealt with my first book, Eyes Off the Prize, The United Nations and the African-American Struggle for Human Rights, really looks at the ways that African-Americans conceived of their rights struggle in the 1940s as a human rights struggle, not a civil rights struggle. They saw that the civil rights were important, but they also knew that the right to housing, the right to health care, the right to education, um, the right to employment was also equally important. And that the Cold War and the linking of those human rights with the Soviet Union and communism then pushed them off of that broad plank because what Black folks were dealing with were massive human rights violations. And they said it was going to take a human rights solution to deal with these human rights violations. And and in that push, we ended up launching a civil rights movement in the mid-1950s. And so I asked... How is it that all of the struggle, all of the bloodshed, and all of the martyrs could still leave an America where schools are more segregated than ever, where the actual lifespan of African-Americans has actually declined? You know, so asking these questions, when Black folks have put it all on the line, how did we end up with this fractured citizenship? I'm sure you mentioned in your father in the military that... um, the recent incident where the second black man in uniform was stopped by police, he almost lost his life as well. What is the span of time that we're talking about from your father being in the military to this man? Exactly, exactly. Daddy got out of the military in the early 1960s. So we're looking at a 60 That man may not have even been born in the early 1960s. Exactly. He was. No, no, no. And 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 seeing how, and so what what becomes fascinating is that you get these narratives about we love the military, we love the military, you know, our, our our troops, we support our troops. But what we see consistently when it comes to black troops is the lack of respect for them. Um and and there when he was pulled over in Virginia in his in his uniform because he ostensibly did not have a license plate on the back of his car, but he had the temporary tag uh, taped to the back window. Uh, And and so this was an excuse. What is this black man doing with this nice car? And and to then- That's exactly what it was. And, And you need to speak to that. Years ago, Alvin Poussin, noted psychiatrist, Harvard Medical. He became famous as well for his work with the first Cosby show. And we were part of a group. And actually, we were razzing him about how slow he drove. And so we were just having a great time giving him a hard time. Okay. And plus, he drove a Jaguar at that point. We said, come on, Alvin you know, speed it up a little bit, that kind of thing. He he did go along with the joke, but at a certain point, he also had to get very serious because he said that every week, at least once a week, going around the exact same roundabout on his way from Harvard home, the same police officers would stop him at the same point give him a hard time. And really what it was about is they did not like, they knew exactly who he was and they wanted to show him who was in charge. So just for listeners, when we're talking about this, when you, Dr. Carol Anderson, our guest today, are talking about this, it's no small thing that a noted scholar is stopped. A man giving life to others is stopped every week because police officers who are given by the citizenry a license to kill are willing to waste taxpayers' time 
spending their time harassing a black man because they don't like the fact that he went to a school that they did not go to. They don't like the fact that he has a job that they don't have. They don't like the fact that he drives a car that they don't have. They don't like the fact that he has a life they don't have. And, and, you know, part of what I discussed in White Rage, what White Rage is, is the pushback for Black advancement, Black achievement, Black aspirations, Black success. And I talk about it in terms of these policies. Whenever African-Americans gain a major push forward toward accessing their citizenship rights, like after the Civil War, where you have moving from property to citizen, the pushback was intense with the black codes and then a series of Supreme Court decisions that eviscerated the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments and required that we have a civil rights movement a hundred years later. This is why we had the laws coming out of the great migration that banned African-Americans from leaving the South to get a better job. that how dare you right how dare you not let us oppress you how right dare you right and so when you have laws that say we can arrest you for trying to leave the city for to get a better job and then we can auction off your labor and put you into these labor camps this is the the kind of policy pushback for desiring to have aspirations to want to do better to fighting to be better to fighting to have more. This is the pushback that we saw after the Brown decision that says that separate but equal has no place in this land. The the massive policies that were put in place to stop black children from getting an education and to defy the US Supreme Court were just intense. The Southern Manifesto where you had over 100 uh, congressional members sign off saying that they would defy the U.S. Supreme Court and use all of their power. You have the creation of legislation that closes down all of the school systems. That way they're all equal, but then provide state funding for tuition for white children to go to all white private academies so that white children could continue their education and there was nothing for black children. We saw that particularly in Prince Edward County, Virginia, that shut down the school system for five years. So imagine you're in the fifth grade and your school doesn't open again until the 10th. Everything that you have lost in those five years is magnified, given the massive changes that were happening in the economy in the 1960s. And we saw it again after the civil rights movement, where you had the rise of law and order and mass incarceration with the war on drugs. It was a way to eviscerate the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, because each of those has these out clauses that if you have a felony conviction, you can be denied access to education. You can be denied employment opportunities. You can be denied the right to vote. So this mass incarceration of black people, and we had disparate sentencing, we had disparate policing, where black folks are rounded up more They do drugs, hard drugs, the least of any racial or ethnic group in the United States, but they are arrested and incarcerated at a much higher level. And then the election of Barack Obama, talk about aspirations. So what we get in its place as, as white rage are a wave of voter suppression policies that target the groups that came out in droves to vote Barack Obama into the White House. You get the targeting of African-Americans, Hispanics, Asian-American, Pacific Islanders, the young and the poor. I call that the hit list for voter suppression as the states who were then unleashed by the U.S. Supreme Court's decision, Shelby County v. Holder, that gutted the Voting Rights Act, that allowed these states to unleash a wave of voter suppression policies, cast as race neutral, but targeted at those communities. 
indeed, as we look at what's going on now, almost 400 bills in Republican-led states across the United States designed to disfranchise African-Americans and other people of color. It is the 125th anniversary of Plessy versus Ferguson. And for those who want to say that we're going back to the 50s, no, we're going back to the 1890s on this one. That's what's happening. When we come back, more here on The Janice Adams Show with our guest, Dr. Carol Anderson. Her newest book is The Second, Race and Guns. I love the subtitle, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. More after the break. Trying to make it real compared to what... We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with my guest today, Dr. Carol Anderson. She has a new book out, The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. But the topic that we had been discussing right before the break was about voter suppression. And in that spirit, I'm asking her to read from her book, One Person, No Vote how voter suppression is destroying our democracy. Would you read to us from that, please? I would love to, thank you. Just as in Florida, election day 2000 in St. Louis was a chaotic mess. Democrats filed for an injunction to keep the doors open at the precincts for a few more hours to accommodate voters who had been caught in the Board of Elections illegal purge and runaround. Missouri Republicans twisted this clear case of election board wrongdoing into a torrent of accusations against the overwhelmingly black residents in St. Louis and the Democrats. Senator Kit Bond was even more specific. He alleged that the attempt to keep the polls open was a brazen, shocking, astonishing, and stunning effort to commit voter fraud with dead people registering and voting from the grave, fake names and phony addresses proliferating across the nation's voter rolls, dogs registering, and people signing up to vote from vacant lots. This was, he continued, a major criminal enterprise designed to defraud voters. It was not. But for the GOP, that was not the point. Rather, the Republicans used this bungled election to walk away with several key lessons. The first was that demographics were not destiny. The second lesson was the importance of controlling the electoral machinery that decided the rules for voting, the conditions upon which those votes would be cast, and whose vote counted and whose vote did not. The final and perhaps most important lesson was to lie, lie often, loudly, boldly, unashamedly and consistently. Lie until it drowned out the truth. Lie until no amount of evidence could prove otherwise. Lie until there was no other reigning narrative. In fact, by the time every one of Bond's 300 plus claims was investigated, it was clear that out of 2.3 million voters in Missouri, the four people who committed some type of malfeasance at the polls hardly constituted the brazen, shocking, astonishing, and stunning voter fraud that he claimed. And it was also obvious that none of these problems could have been resolved by requiring photo ID at the polls. Yet, from the tattered cloths of bureaucratic snafus, administrative incompetency, and typographical errors, the lie of rampant voter fraud hung there, dangling, as the senator kept fashioning democracy's noose. Wow. I'm listening to you read that, and the message is important, the words are important, but what's striking me is the look on your face and your tone of voice. Um, ticked? <laughs> yes. Watching the lie, the, the, and this gets to what I talk about, the anti-Blackness that courses through American society. In this moment, it was so easy 
for them to identify the cities as the source of massive rampant voter fraud, the source of a massive criminal enterprise. So it was identifying St. Louis, then it was identifying Philadelphia and Detroit and Cleveland and East St. Louis as these hotbeds of criminal corruption out to destroy American democracy. When you think about where we are right now, the identification of Philadelphia, Detroit, Atlanta, and Milwaukee as the source of massive rampant voter fraud that somehow stole the election from Donald Trump. It's the same lie. And the evidence does not matter. That's the thing about the power of this lie. Because the anti-Blackness is so deeply embedded, it becomes just logical to think that Black folks stole this election. They somehow stole this election by standing out in the middle of a pandemic that disproportionately killed Black people in order to fight for this democracy. They somehow stole this election by using the mechanisms that were available, such as absentee ballots, to be able to cast a ballot that would amplify their voices in terms of their political voices, that they refuse to be shut out and shut down in this election where democracy hung in the balance. And for having that massive voter turnout, the response has been, as I said, this white rage of legislation targeted at keeping Black folks down and away from the ballot box, creating additional hurdles, but also in controlling the election machinery so that Black voter turnout can be overridden by the policymakers who want to certify an election or who want to determine whose votes count and whose votes don't. So when I laid out what they learned after the 2000 election, what we're dealing with are those learned lessons right now. You know, why do we believe that America would be otherwise? I'm looking at your subtitle, Is Destroying Our Democracy. But for most of this country's history, the majority of people have never been allowed to vote. The majority, that is women and people of color, were not allowed to vote. I, I was at Susan B. Anthony's home. I was standing in the lobby of her home where she was literally arrested and the crime that she committed was voting as a woman. Yes. Why would we think that it would be otherwise? And I think that what we're dealing with is the power of the aspirations of America. Um, and those aspirations are the plane on which we have fought since the very beginning for equality. So when this nation's aspirations are, we hold these truths to be self-evident. And then the reality is not the holding of those truths to be self-evident. That aspirational plane is where those battles for equality and justice have been waged. The the problem is, is that you've got a large swath of folks who treat those aspirations as achievements, like it's already been done. So when you have these folks talking about, there's no racism in the United States, or who are talking about, there's no structural racism, uh, and, and the push against teaching the history of slavery, teaching the history of, of the removal of indigenous people, teaching the history of Jim Crow. All of that, the battles over that history is the battles over aspirations versus achievements. Carol, when you first started writing um, your books, were you teaching at that point? Were you in the academy? Uh, yes. And yes. where were you? So I, the, the, I earned my PhD out of Ohio State. Um, and then um, my first teaching job was at the University of Missouri in Columbia. Um, and so that's where I wrote Eyes Off the Prize. And that's where I started Bourgeois Radicals. And then I moved to Emory University and finished Bourgeois Radicals and then uh, completed White Rage and then One Person No Vote and now the second, all at Emory. 
What kind of reception in the academy did you get to your work? Well, that's interesting. So the eyes off the prize, um, I had what was called um, an advanced contract for it uh, with a publisher. And I was like, yes. Um, And so I finished the manuscript. I get it into my publisher in August. I have to have my tenure file together by March but I had done all of the pre-vetting of each chapter. I knew the book was strong. And so I called my publisher in November to see how the reviews were going, Um, you know, because they send the manuscript out for external review, for peer reviews, and then they come in. And so I was mapping out what I would be doing, the changes that I would be making to that manuscript over Christmas break. Well, I called my editor and he says, eh, I didn't even bother to send it out. You what? You were sitting on my manuscript since August. This is now November and you haven't even bothered to send it out. And he went, yeah. I said, you didn't bother to call me either. I said, what did you think was wrong with it? Why didn't you send it out? He said, I didn't think you'd get good reviews. Why not? Well, you were a little graphic with the lynchings. Graphic with the lynchings? I said, I'm not the one blowtorching folk. If you don't understand the depth of the violence that Black people faced after the Second World War and that there was no accountability whatsoever in any of the American systems that would drive the NAACP all the way to the United Nations, me saying, oh, there was a lynching, it doesn't make sense. He said, well, okay, fine. But you know, you were a little hard on Harry. That's hard on Harry Truman. Um, and, and so it was clear to me that what he wanted was me to write a white savior book. He wanted me to write a book about how whites came in and basically provided human rights and civil rights to black people. And black people were grateful. He didn't want a real history that showed how conflicted and how complex this moment was and what led to the denial of human rights and pushing African-Americans onto a civil rights platform. So I yanked the manuscript from that press and then had to hurry up and shop it and ended up going with Cambridge University Press. And that book ended up winning two book awards and being a finalist for two others. So much for not getting good reviews. And the second is getting really good, strong reviews. Um, Because as a historian, I'm, I'm in the records, I'm in the documents, I'm in the key literature, and I'm, I'm connecting the dots and I'm helping, I'm making legible what has been so opaque and what has been so mythologized that it's, it has become virtually impenetrable. So the editor was the one who did not know what he had, mm-hmm. essentially. And your department, how did they actually respond to the book? Uh, they were wonderful. They were wonderful. Uh, I was in a good, strong department at the University of Missouri. That history department was wonderful, um, really supportive, um, just had my back as I yanked the manuscript from the press and then was shopping it around. You know, they had my back. That was, it was good knowing that I didn't have to fight my department as well. How typical is your department? Well, you know, there uh, was a a thing going around. Let's just say that that department was atypical. Um, So many of my friends have had to do battle in the academy to have their research um, funded, to have their research accepted, to have their research uh, rewarded. Um, to have their research acknowledged, to have their very beings as scholars not questioned. Um, Just, yeah, unfortunately, it's atypical. Unfortunately, it's atypical. Um, I'm thinking of two things as as you say that the the group that is begun by Kristen Smith that's become a movement, hashtag Sight Black Women, um, and I was fortunate to have them on the show. And also um, what has recently happened to the New York Times 
writer, Nicole Hannah-Jones, where UNC, the University of North Carolina, pulled her, her tenure as backlash to the 1619 Project. What are we seeing in, you know, Carter G. Woodson, Mm-hmm. In the miseducation of the Negro, we have all, I think, heard the phrase that when you control a man's thinking, you don't have to worry about his actions. Uh, and the completion of that statement is you do not have to tell him not to stand here or go yonder. He will find his quote proper place and will stay in it. But it wasn't until later that I came back and I saw the fuller context of that statement from Carter G. Woodson, where he talks about the need for Black history. And uh, for those who don't know, he is the one who in 1926 founded Negro History Week, which then becomes Black History Month as it kind of morphs along. But Woodson also said and this is particularly relevant to the era in which we are today, even though he wrote this in 1933. He said this crusade, the crusade for Black history, is much more important than any anti-lynching movement because there would be no lynching if it did not start in the classroom. Mm. Boom. That's the mic drop right there. And that's what this battle is over. So when you see this push against the 1619 project, um, so when Trump came up with his 1776 commission, that also showed that he didn't understand 1776. He didn't didn't understand uh, the battle against indigenous people. He didn't understand that they had a ban on allowing uh, Black people to fight in the Continental Army until they had no other other way, the exigencies of war compelled them to do so. He didn't understand that South Carolina refused to arm the enslaved, even though they only had 750 white men under arms, and that was going to be no match for the 8,000 British troops that were barreling down on them. They flat out refused and said, we would rather take our chances with the king than arm the enslaved. So, you know, so you get in this moment where the power of white supremacy and the power of the need to subjugate black people takes over from the 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 dream of the United States of America. So the here you have, again, just the way when they said we don't when they were asked to arm the enslaved. They said, we were horrified. We were alarmed. We wondered whether this was a nation worth fighting for. So when that's what's coming out of South Carolina during the war for independence, but you know that that is not what Trump meant by his 1776 commission. It was designed to to continue to perpetuate this this feeling of these two-dimensional founding father heroes who fought for democracy and freedom and justice and pushed off a tyrannical government. Um, One of the things that I cover in the second is to deal with the myth of the militia. So we get the myth of the militia as being just absolutely essential to fending off a foreign invasion. But what they knew at the time from the war for independence was that the militia was not effective. There were times when they would show up. There were times when they wouldn't. There were times when they would fight. There were times when they wouldn't. There were times when they would take off running. George Washington was beside himself at the unreliability of the militia to fend off a professional army. Governor Morris out of New York said relying upon the militia to withstand a foreign invasion is like depending upon a broken reed. So they knew the militia. They also knew at the time that um, there was a, a, a rebellion of white men in Massachusetts, Shays Rebellion, that happened right before the Constitutional Convention. And these white men were attacking the Massachusetts government because of taxation policy and the foreclosure and the seizure of land. And so they're attacking and they're taking over the courthouses. They're 
on their way to the armory in Springfield and the militia will not put them down. In fact, members of the militia are joining Shay's rebellion. And so it requires that these Boston merchants hire a mercenary army to take down Shay's rebellion. So the role of the militia as being this bulwark against domestic tyranny, that's not what was in their head as they're at the Constitutional Convention. What they knew that this militia could do consistently was to put down slave revolts. That's what the militia did. And so when you see that language that's in the Second Amendment, it is because Patrick Henry, founding father, revolutionary war hero, is is demanding protection of the militia because James Madison had put that control in the Constitution under the federal government. Patrick Henry and George Mason are hollering eight ways to Sunday during the ratification convention in Virginia that their state will be left defenseless against a slave revolt. They said you cannot count on, you cannot rely upon the North to defend us. You cannot rely upon the North to send in the militia when the slaves revolt. We will be left defenseless and they demanded a bill of rights that would protect them and protect the militia. And and they said, if we don't get it, then we will have another constitutional convention. James Madison was afraid of that because what that would mean is that he knew that that would get rid of that architecture that he had put in place via the constitution and lead back to the Articles of Confederation, which had this really weak structure, no real strong central government that had the states printing their own money, making their own foreign policy, setting up tariffs against each other, and it just was not functioning. That's what he was afraid of. And so he was willing, again, just like with the three-fifths clause, just like with the extension of the Atlantic slave trade for 20 additional years, and just like with the fugitive slave clause in the Constitution, to bribe the South with Black bodies in order to get the United States made whole. And there you have it. That is America in black and white. And when you consider the fact that the first martyr, the first man to fall in the American Revolutionary War is a black man, Crispus Attucks. There we have it. More with our guest, Dr. Carol Anderson. Her most recent book is The Second Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. And a previous book is One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. We'll be back with our guest, Carol Anderson, after the break, here on The Janice Adams Show. here on the Janice Adams Show with my guest, Dr. Carol Anderson. She is the author of a new book called The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. Carol, we've been talking so much and learning so much from you, um, but we haven't gotten to hear you read from The Second. Would you do that, please? I would love to. And so this section deals with the killing of John Crawford and the ways that open carry laws don't work for black people. Just as stand your ground was an affirmation of the second amendment's right to self-defense, open carry laws were the companion piece for the right to bear arms and proved to be equally lethal to black Americans. The research project, Mapping Police Violence has documented that between 2013 to 2019, with more than 1,900 deaths, Black Americans were killed by police at three times the rate of white Americans when adjusted for population. In addition, they were more likely than any other racial or ethnic group to be unarmed when killed by law enforcement. Those data, coupled with the work of Stanford University researcher Jennifer Eberhardt, suggest that Black people are perceived as the universal threat. 
Thus, when African-Americans openly carry a gun, although allowed by law, it raises exponentially the sense of danger about them and to them. On August 5th, 2014, John Crawford III, a 22-year-old black man, was in a Walmart in the Dayton, Ohio area, shopping for the ingredients to make s'mores and talking on the phone to the mother of his two children, when he happened to spot a BB gun out of its package lying on the shelves in the toy department. He picked it up, and as he continued to go through the store, shopping and talking, a customer, April Ritchie, spied him and told her husband, Ronald, that Crawford looked very shady because he wasn't making eye contact and seemed not to want to draw attention to himself. She felt unsafe. Ritchie agreed and followed Crawford throughout the Walmart and called 911, reporting that a gentleman was walking around with a gun in the store. He's like pointing it at people. He claimed Crawford was loading what appeared to be a rifle and waving it back and forth. Richie, who had previously shared with his friends an article from the Tea Party News Network that Barack Obama and his attorney general, Eric Holder, were race hustlers, stayed on the phone describing a black man who had begun pointing the gun at like two children and then reaffirmed that claim for the 911 operator. Spurred on by the fears of a couple afraid of a black man in an open carry state who was openly carrying a rifle in a store where guns are sold, police officers believed they were rushing into something akin to an active shooter situation. They scoured the store and set eyes on Crawford, who had his back to them while still on the phone. One of the officers commanded, drop the weapon. Crawford didn't perhaps because he was distracted by his phone conversation, perhaps because the officers didn't identify themselves as police, perhaps because it was a BB gun and not, in his mind, a weapon. Nevertheless, Crawford's unintended noncompliance amplified the fear. In those fateful few seconds, the officer recalled, I felt at that moment that my life was in immediate danger, that the sergeant's life was in immediate danger, and that the lives of all of the families, children, and customers were in immediate danger. I then fired two rounds at the suspect. Well, open carry law is clear. As long as the gun owner is not posing a threat, the right to openly carry a firearm is inviolate. When the FBI synced up the video with Ronald Ritchie's 911 call, it was obvious that he had described events to the emergency operator that had never happened. Crawford was not aiming the weapon at anyone, much less two children. There was no loading of the BB gun or aiming the muzzle at customers. There was no waving the rifle around. In short, because the couple felt unsafe about Crawford being in a store that sells guns, carrying what they thought was a gun in an open carry state, the young father was put in the crosshairs of two police bullets. Unfazed by what he had done, Richie, who would not be charged with making a false 911 call, sounded like those in the wake of Trayvon Martin's killing, where the victim was blamed for his own death. Richie offered that Crawford kind of deserved it. If you're dumb enough to point any kind of weapon at a police officer, you get what's coming to you. Wow. I, I'm always struck by all these studies that have been done into Black people. Um, studies about why Black people behave the way they do in the midst of poverty. Why Black people do this. Where is the study about white pathology? Where is the study that deals with what is done in that story that you just described to a man named John Crawford, to a 12-year-old child, to Mia Rice? And I, I don't unfortunately know his name, but I remember the story of another child riding his bicycle, killed by police in Long Island. And it turned out to be the gun that they were accusing this child of having was a candy bar with a silver wrapper. Um, and also in the second, to use your, your title, the second that they see him, they decide to kill him. Yes. Um, yes, Lord. In That's... a way, your books bring us closer to that study. Because you're documenting the actual stories behind these stories. 
Yes. I, I mean, I'm really laying out this struggle for Black equality and the forces that are against this struggle. What we're talking about, when you said we have the studies, we have the studies on what I call the narrative of Black pathology, you know, all that is wrong with Black people. One of the first things that I do in White Rage is is just break those mythologies apart so that, you know, you know, the problem with Black families is that Black men just don't care about their kids, except there's a CDC study that shows that Black men spend more quality time time with their children, regardless of the relationship with the mother, than any other race or ethnicity, more quality time. That means not just sitting there watching TV. That means reading books. That means going to museums. That means spending quality time with the child. Black men spend more time with their children. But you don't get that when you get this narrative of Black pathology and the destruction of the Black family. Carol Anderson, this has been quite an education and really quite a reality check for what we really should be thinking of when we talk about this land for most of us, this land of our birth. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Janice. My thanks to Carol Anderson and to you for joining us on the Janice Adams Show today. For the podcast, links to her books, and more, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. Hashtag staying home for COVID-19. I'm Janice Adams in cooperation with WJFF Radio Catskill post-production Jason Dole. This show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, all rights reserved. Thank you.